Hello everyone, I'm Corey and we're Talking Manpower. Today I've got a very, very special guest with me. I've got Mr. Maurice Yaglum. He's the director of the Manpower Policy, Programming and Allocations Directorate here at the Office of the Surgeon General. Mr. Yaglum, I know you're very busy, so thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Corey. Could you please explain to me a little bit about your role here at OTSG? About 10% of Army and strength is medical. And from this office, we program the Army's medical manpower resource. Um, it's a complicated program. We have over 100 officer specialties. Um, the training tail is complicated. Um, force management issues like recruitment and retention are complex. But medical support is a, is a critical function for the Army and the Surgeon General is the proponent for Army Medical Manpower, Army-wide, and we program her manpower. We also, at the strategic level within Headquarters DA, we participate representing the Surgeon General in multiple forums that address Army manpower requirements. We represent the, the medical part of that. Um, there's also engagement with the Defense Health Agency. Um, significant percentage of our manpower is defense health program funded. That's an OSD appropriation, not an Army appropriation. So any adjustments um, initiated by Army adjusting defense health program manpower has to be formally coordinated with health affairs. And we work those, those actions. So we're all over the place. So you've kind of alluded to this just now, but from my understanding, you work under the Defense Health Program. So could you explain to me a little bit about how this program works and some of the unique challenge it poses to manpower analysts? Okay. So the Defense Health Program was established back in 1991. And, and that's the funding for our healthcare delivery pro provided at our fixed treatment facilities. Um, the Defense Health Program also um, funds medical education and training in medical logistics and, and a host of other admin um, responsibilities where the Army funds our medical structure in Army operational units. So according to DOD policy, since, oh, since the Defense Health Program is an OSD appropriation, we can't unilaterally make adjustments to their resourced manpower. We have to work, uh, it's called a memorandum of agreement, a formal agreement between Army and with OSD on Army-initiated changes to the Defense Health Program manpower resource. So that keeps us pretty busy too. So how long have you been a manpower force manager? Um, I've been here at the Office of the Surgeon General for 34 years. So how has your role evolved over those years? I was in the National Guard Bureau initially and then um, there was a promotion opportunity to come to the office of the Surgeon General. And um, I remember getting a phone call. Um, it was, I think it was a GS-12 position that I was accepted. And I told the Colonel who called me that I knew nothing about the office of the Surgeon General. You're in the Pentagon, I'm here in Aberdeen. Um, is there any way I can come by for maybe an informal interview and look-see? I said, sure. So, and I'm still in touch with this colonel um, almost 35 years later. 
I visited his office in the Pentagon. It was through room 3D-487. And he explained to me what this office does and how we support um, Army medicine and the strategic vision of the Surgeon General and the larger operational readiness mission of the Army. And he, he assured me during that interview that I promise you, you're going to enjoy it here. And he was right. Um, the Office of the Surgeon General is a, is a unique place on the Army staff. Um, these officers, the personnel, the uniform personnel who are assigned here, um, they're, they're awesome. Um, most of them, almost all of them, have been on multiple deployments overseas. Um, there are also many of them are clinicians or healthcare, healthcare administrators. Um, they, they have a real compassion for soldiers and, and Army families. And this, is, this makes for a unique environment, a, a very caring workforce, a compassionate workforce. And it's really a privilege to be part of that workforce. So over the years, how have, how have you seen Army medical manpower evolve? Army medical manpower is part of the Army. And if the Army is directed to shrink, its medical department is directed to shrink as well. And those could be very trying periods of, of turmoil because in contrast to um, branches like infantry and the combat arms, if the Army reduces um, infantry officers, for example, but then decides for whatever reason it's got to grow them back, uh, the training period of time is not that significant. It just takes a few months to grow an infantry officer or an infantryman. Very different for Army medical clinicians. Um, some of these uniform specialties, it takes literally years, almost a decade, to grow that specialty. So when the Army makes a decision to reduce its medical structure, there are significant risks. And um, we saw that when the Army grew um, as a result of the engagement in Iraq and Af Afghanistan. We had been taken down in the 90s as part of the Army drawdown. And then when the, when the Army had to grow, um, we were caught short in um, specific examples of behavioral health. You, you recall the demand for behavioral health that came out of the theater. I don't think the nation anticipated that. The Army did not anticipate it. And Army medicine did not anticipate it. So we were short behavioral health specialists. So it took, it took a while to get that structure back in place, but with the help of the senior Army leadership, they also recognized we had a shortfall in capability. Specifically, it was General Corelli, who cared very much about behavioral health and Army's ability to support the behavioral health needs of our soldiers. So we were, we were Army agreed to grow us, and we grew behavioral health capability. But we also have to adhere to Army's manpower management processes. So even, even with that sense of urgency that we needed behavioral health, additional structure, we still had to update our models and work closely with the U.S. Army Manpower um, Agency and vet our updated models with them before Army G3 approved, approved this increase in requirements. And that took all of 18 months, even with a sense of urgency from the senior Army leadership, from the, from the Army Vice Chief of Staff himself personally, get this fixed. It still took 18 months to get the requirement updated. 
Just an example of many. So what's the best way if someone wants to come here or you have a new, someone's interested in coming to OTSG, what's the best way they can prepare for the opportunity? You have the Office of the Surgeon General. We're an element of the Army Staff Headquarters DA. Um, and we support the Surgeon General who is an our staff principal, Army Staff principal, and responsible for, multiple, for all things Army medicine to include Army manpower, Army medical manpower. But the Surgeon General is, is also dual-hatted as the commander of MedCom. So we're a small office here on headquarters DA. We're not physically in the Pentagon today, although we used to be. Um, we were pushed out in the late 90s to make room for something called Star Wars back in the day, Star War, the Star War Initiative. But the Surgeon General dual-hatted as the commander of MedCom. MedCom is headquartered in Joint Base San Antonio, and they also have a manpower office. I work very closely with that office. Everything we do, we ensure they're in the loop and vice versa. But our parameters are more broad. Um, we address Army medical manpower across the entire Army. Where MedCom manpower, their focus is on MedCom manpower issues. So issues like TDA documentation, requirements determination, um, internal to the command, um, allocation of manpower across the subordinate commands of MedCom. That's worked by MedCom manpower. We work up here at the more strategic level. Um, there are a lot of opportunities in MedCom manpower. It's a larger organization. And they've got about 30 um, requirements in their MedCom manpower office, where here at OTSG manpower, thanks to recent downsizing of headquarters DA, um, our, med, our manpower office here is pretty small. Um, small, but with a lot of responsibility. So we, um, we work it pretty hard. So I know that you're retiring soon, and so I just wanted to take a few moments to um, have you reflect a little bit. So what, accomplish what accomplishment are you most proud of in your career? working to best support, provide medical support for the soldier and their families. Um, but that's a general response. Um, specifically, um, I personally have been involved in a, a lot of things over the years. Um, the, the concept plan to establish MedCom with the Surgeon General dual-hatted as the commander of MedCom, we just talked about that. Um, this office wrote that, drafted that concept plan, and we coordinated that concept plan, and we were just reminiscing earlier how a previous, they're called Army G3 today, but in those days it was called the Army Desk Ops, would not permit the medical leadership to, to bring the proposal to the Army Vice Chief of Staff until we identified medical, to, until we identified manpower bill payers. That was an arduous discussion but we had no choice. We had to deliver the manpower bill payers to decrease the skids on the approval of this concept plan. So some years later, <clears throat> I ran into that um, three-star as a four-star in Korea. And we had a great conversation. And um, I asked him if he recalled the, that 
that concept plan proposal to establish MedCom and how he pressed us for manpower bill payers. And he laughed and said that he recalls it real well. And then he asked me, it was the right thing to do for the Army, right? I said, yes, it was the right decision. Um, that was, a, that was a, a, a great move forward for the Army, Army medicine. In fact, back in the day, MedCom was referred to as the first 21st century Army command. Um, some of the issues we've worked here have been tumultuous. And what comes to mind is medical milsiv conversion. Um, the department directed the military services to implement milsiv conversion, and medical was identified as, as, as a commodity that required real attention. So we were given targets, um, and initially we met those targets, but we had to certify that um, medical milsiv conversion was, was not um, negatively impacting readiness or cost or issues like access to care, quality of care, um, was not negatively impacting recruitment retention. And that was easy early on because the mili military billets within MedCom that we were identifying for conversion were like the generic personnel specialists, um, the, gen the general supply specialists. So they were easy to convert, provided we had the money, and we, we had the money. You could find that civilian offset in the, in the local communities. Where it got challenging was when we got deep into the medical specialties. We had done that careful evaluation, evaluation of the local markets. Um, our assessment, we were able to identify specific medical specialties, military specialties that were conducive for civilianization. So how it worked was, once the billet was converted, the military face was quickly realigned to maybe the operating force. The civilian backfill, the civilian replacement, due to the cumbersome nature of civilian hiring, it took months to backfill that lost military medical capability. So what happened across medical command, we were converting hundreds of medical billets, and what, what we saw was a proliferation of, of shortfalls in empty medical treatment facility capabilities because we were unable to backfill this lost military medical uh, um, faces that had been reassigned from MedCom. It was a significant game changer. And then the Army leadership began visiting installations and they met with our treatment facility commanders. And basically the question, how can we help you? What can we do, do for you? Get this medical milsiv conversion off our backs. It's killing us. So our office, on behalf of the Surgeon General, we began to engage with, with Manpower and Reserve Affairs at the Secretariat level. They're responsible for the, for the policy. And initially, um, there wasn't much empathy um, this is the policy, we're being directed by OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense, and we've got to comply with this directive. But we kept pressing, um, writing memos, arranging meetings, and, and finally, the, at the senior Army leadership level, they understood that medical milsiv conversion was not working. 
Uh, maybe in theory it sounded like the right thing to do, but in terms of implementation, it was it was not working. So um, I recall the um, the MNRA came to visit the Surgeon General at the time and um, offered to um, restore billets that had been identified for conversion and allowed us to keep the civilian structure as well. We were at war and our mission was growing, so there was also sensitivity to ensuring we had sufficient manpower to meet the in increasing demand for health care. So Congress was also sensitive to medical mill conversion. Early on, they requested that the military secretaries certify that medical mill civ conversion was not um, impairing readiness or was cost that it was cost advantageous and the same issues we just discussed. No impact on recruitment, no impact on retention. We weren't impacting in a negative way quality care or access to care. So early on, like I said, we were able to certify or recommend certification to the Secretariat. But it later reached the point that we could not make that recommendation. So Congress was sensitive to this issue. So in NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act 2009, um, they enacted legislation which prohibited medical mill conversion. And it stood intact until last year's NDAA. NDAA 17 rescinded the previous prohibition. So we are once again evaluating potential for medical mill conversion. And my hope is that we learned, we learned lessons from 12 years ago. It was a tumultuous process 12 years ago, and if we're not careful, we can generate the same level of turmoil into our medical workforce. So as you prepare to transition into retirement, what legacy do you hope to leave in the Army medical community and the Army manpower community? First of all, I've enjoyed all 34 years here. Like we mentioned earlier, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to work here in, on the staff of the Surgeon General. Um, my, my legacy? <laughs> um, I hope my legacy was a, a commitment and devotion to Army medicine and the Surgeon General's mission of preparing clinicians for their wartime mission. And um, that's done in our military treatment facilities. There are our health readiness platforms. That's where the training takes place. And there's a lot of pressure on Army medicine to further reduce. Across the department, um, medical support is viewed as a very expensive commodity. There's pressure to reduce, um, but the challenge is once you make decisions to um, transition military hospitals to outpatient health clinics, very difficult to reverse those decisions. And there, there, there are very smart people within the office of the Secretary of Defense that view military treatment facilities on installations as a legacy of the 20th century, that there are alternative ways to provide health care for, to our, for our soldiers and families. It doesn't need to be an expensive brick and mortar facility on an installation. But we've got to be careful. 
And um, this office has played a significant role in, in articulating that strategic message on behalf of the Surgeon General. Um, you have to be careful because when you reduce, if you decide to reduce medical manpower in a willy-nilly way, and if we have to restore that structure, it's not that easy to restore. Um, the challenge is, is our medical inventory. We can adjust the requirement and we can document the authorization, but triggering the system to grow the inventory, um, that can take years depending on the specialty. Um, so roughly 10% of Army and strength is medical. The Army's made a significant investment in its medical structure for good reason. The nation expects the, the finest medical support for America's soldiers. Uh, they, there is no compromise on that level of support. So we're sensitive to that. And um, we've, over the years, have, have worked hard to explain an Army forum, such as total Army analysis. If we have a shortfall in medical structure, medical manpower, we make the case why we need additional adjustments to that medical manpower. And um, to the Army's credit, the Army, the Army usually delivers. Um, they, they also are sensitive to ensuring that medical support is available for our soldiers and families, especially on the battlefield. Well, Mr. Yaglin, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything else that you would like to add? It's, it's been a, a privilege to serve on the staff of the office, on the, on the Surgeon General staff. Um, this is a great place to work. Um, I've had multiple opportunities to leave over the years. I elected to stay. So I literally grew up here in the office of the Surgeon General. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages of staying in one place and growing up in one place. And the advantage is you're at the continuity. And you learn a lot about the mission of Army medicine. And there hasn't been a day where I haven't learned something new about Army medicine or the Army. Um, there's always something to learn about Army medicine. So that's, that's been fun staying in one place and, and becoming an expert on, on Army medical force structure and manpower. But if there's a disadvantage, it would be this. Um, I could have gone to other elements of the Army staff, for example, and learned maybe from the Army G357 force management perspective, or from Army G1, or Army G8, or manpower and reserve affairs at the secretariat level or maybe taking an assignment at, at the Army command level, at the operational level, to learn how Army manpower is managed at, at that level, not at the strategic level. I recognize there's some significant differences. Um, so that may have, if I had gone that route, that maybe I could have expanded my horizon. And maybe that would have been to the benefit of Army, the larger Army manpower program. But um, I look back with no regrets. I've enjoyed this, this 34 years here at the Army Office of the Surgeon General. And um, whenever we have a vacancy, it's extremely rare. 
Um, our civilians tend to stay here a long time. Um, one of my coworkers has been a coworker for over 30 years. Um, but when we do have that rare vacancy, um, I'm frequently asked in the Pentagon, when's your next vacancy? We would love to work here in, in OTSG manpower. So I think it's got a reputation as a, as a great place to work. And it all boils down to the compassion for the soldier. Um, it's the leadership, it's the direction Army medicine is going, continues to go. Um, Army readiness is job number one, but there's, a, there's that level of compassion for the soldier and, and the soldier's families. And that's what makes this a great place to work. Well, Mr. Yaglum, I want to thank you so much for your service for the past 34 years. Um, I want to thank you for everything you've done for the Army manpower community. I know that you're a trusted voice everywhere I go. People always talk about you and how you are a, uh, you know, one of those cool heads that they can always turn to for mentorship. And I know you've mentored a, a lot of, a lot of people over the years. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for your service, and I want to wish you the best of luck. And I know that you're very busy this week, but I want to thank you also for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Corey. All the best. Well, everyone, that's all we have time for right now. So stay tuned for our next upcoming episode on our Facebook page and our Divots account. And until next time, have a great Army Day.